Hello, my name is Vance Need, and welcome to another episode of the PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to another called The Postscript. Now on that podcast, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe each week will speak with other pastors and professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute on a wide array of topics. Here on this podcast, the PS Plus, we'll take a look at some of the topics that are being discussed and we'll dive in just a bit deeper. Guys, you already know where we're at, man. We're doing some KJV deep dives and we're just going to keep rolling, y'all. So let's do this thing. So in our previous episode, we were looking at the Textus Receptus, and in today's episode, we're going to start shifting and taking a look at the critical text. However, before we do that, let's go ahead and review the former. Textus Receptus, of course, is Latin for received text, also referred to as the Byzantine, the Syrian, the majority, the traditional text. And again, just by way of review, one of the most important things that we've been seeing is that the Textus Receptus was a name It applies to all printed manuscripts of that same Byzantine text type. Now, in the previous episode, we completed kind of looking at the major versions of the Textus Receptus that started with Desiderius Erasmus, who published five editions from 1516 to 1535. Robert Estien, also known as Stephanus, that published four editions from 1546 to 1551. Theodore Beza, who published nine editions from 1565 to 1604. Tag Team Champions of the World, Abraham and Bonaventure El Ziver, who published three editions from 1624 to 1641. And lastly, Frederick Henry Ambrose Scrivener, who published one edition in 1881. So with the bulk of today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at what's known as the critical text. Now, this text is also known as the minority text, the eclectic text, the Alexandrian text, the Nestle Alon text, and the UBS or United Bibles Societies text. Similar to the Textus Receptus, the critical text isn't derived from a single manuscript, but rather a collection of manuscripts with a similar structure and attribute. And similar to the Textus Receptus, there are a variety of printed editions of the critical text. A few episodes ago, we were taking a look at some of the translator's notes of the Net Bible, which was referencing the NA28, or the Nestle Aland 28th edition, to give you an example. And as we've explored on this podcast before, the critical text is the basis for many of the modern versions. Again, the NET Bible, the NIV, the ESV, the NLT, and many, many more. Now, some things that we want to note, and which we'll talk about some on this podcast, some in future episodes, is that the critical text is a much later development than that of the Textus Receptus, as far as a collected text that one would reference. The King James, published in 1611, as well as previous translations of the Bible, like Tyndale's English New Testament in 1522, or the Bishop's Bible in 1568, were, were, were sourced from Byzantine manuscripts. And we really don't see the introduction of a printed critical text type until 1881. Now, this is when the revised version of the Bible is released, which we'll talk about more another time. And also, a Greek New Testament published by two textual critics, Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort. Again, two fellows that we'll talk about more in a future episode. 
However, before we get into the printed Greek editions, let's focus a little bit on the manuscripts that underlie those editions. And we can't talk about those manuscripts without at least mentioning one guy, Constantine von Tischendorf. So first things first, that's an awesome name. It's fantastic. I like it a lot. I think my name is pretty great. I mean, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but toot toot, Van Albert Sneed III, I think that's a pretty dope name, but it's no Constantine von Tischendorf. That's an excellent name. He was a German textual critic who lived from 1815 to 1874. Now, let's pause for the cause here just for a second. It's been a while since we've talked about textual criticism and defined it. So by way of review, again, I think it's like at this point, when you're in like episode 16 of a series that's been going on for for a while, it's like everything is review, right? But but let's go ahead and do our due diligence. Textual criticism is the study of manuscripts or printings to determine the original or most authoritative form of a text. So Tischendorf is a textual critic. And what that means for him is that he is interested in restoring the true words of scripture by looking for the oldest and best manuscripts. As we've outlined before, this is what we would call a critical view of Scripture, which, of course, is referencing a critical text, and that's contrasted with what we would consider a faith-based view of Scripture. We can learn more about Tischendorf's motivations by just listening to what he has said, which is this, quote, I resolved in 1839 to devote myself to the textual study of the New Testament and attempted, by making use of all the acquisitions of the last three centuries, to reconstruct, if possible, the exact text as it came from the pen of the sacred writers. Now, this is kind of hinting on a lot of things we've talked about previously, mainly that individuals in a textual criticism mindset are looking for the original writings because in their view, that is what God inspired. We've talked previously about how inspiration is 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 not this when pen hits paper, but rather when holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Tischendorf is starting with the presupposition that the text of the Bible is not providentially preserved by God himself without the assistance of human scholarship, but rather... The Bible is preserved in the collection of manuscripts that require the studied comparison of qualified individuals. Now, Tischendorf is of note because he finds one of the key manuscripts for the critical text type, which is known as Codex Sinaiticus. Another fancy word here that we've mentioned before, Codex is just fancy for book. That's all it is. So he finds a book and he finds it in a particular place, which is why it gets its name. Tischendorf discovered Sinaiticus, also known as Aleph or A, in 1859 at St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai, hence its name. Scholars often date this manuscript to the 4th century, which is approximately 330 to 350 AD, and it's particularly valued because at the time of its finding, even unto right now, it's considered to be the oldest complete Greek New Testament available. Proponents of this codex consider it to be an original form of the text, so so, so very, very close to what the writers penned. Concurrently, it's recognized by proponents as the most heavily corrected 
early New Testament manuscript, and we'll talk about that here shortly. Now, the means by which Tischendorf acquired this codex is a matter of debate. You'll read several different accounts, some that are very believable, some that are not so believable. Putting all of that aside, he did get his hands on Codex Sinaiticus, this this book that contained some of the Old Testament, but the completed Greek New Testament. And through a series of kind of odd events, it ends up in Russia because Tischendorf was under the auspice of Alexander II, the Tsar of Russia at the time. The other manuscript that we want to call attention to is known as Codex Vaticanus, also known as B, and this was found in the Vatican Library. Now, it is comprised of of, of 759-ish leaves or pages, and it has almost all of the Old and New Testaments. It's not known exactly when it arrived at the Vatican, but it is included in a catalog listing dated back to 1475, so it's, so it's been there for a while. The manuscript itself is thought to be dated, again, around the 4th century, so 320s to 350s AD. Scholars became aware of Vaticanus because of the correspondence they found between a guy that we know, Desiderius Erasmus, and the prefects of the Vatican Library. Now, what's particularly interesting here is that it illustrates that Erasmus had access to Vaticanus, and yet he didn't employ its readings in his own works. Now, I think it would be good at this time to note a couple of things about the works themselves. And we're going we're gonna to do this by looking at some of the men that have studied these particular codices and seeing what they say about them. One of them, whom we know again, Scrivener, the compiler of the 1881 edition of the Texas Receptus, had this to say about Vaticanus. It is covered with such alterations brought in by at least 10 different revisers, some of them systematically spread over every page. In other words, this manuscript was a product of constant revisions and updates by successive scribes. If you were to Google the manuscript, for example, you would see uh, what is akin to kind of a, a column format with lots of revisions and notes and notes on top of notes in the margins. Author R.L. Dabney, author of The Doctrinal Various Readings of the New Testament Greek, says this about the manuscripts, quote, It is expressly admitted that neither of these has an extant history, no documentary evidence, exists as to the names of the copyists who transcribed them, the date, or the place of their writing. Nobody knows whence the Vatican manuscripts came to the Pope's library or how long it has been there. Tischendorf himself was unable to trace the presence of his favorite codex in the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Horeb by external witnesses higher than the 12th century. The early date is confessedly assigned by conjecture. Now, this is kind of a key thing. Let's pause here. He's saying that the date, we know for sure we can track it to the 12th century, but man, we can't really get it to the 4th century. That's conjecture. Another word for that would be guesswork. Now, the reason why that's important is if your ideology is a textual critic ideology where the older manuscript is better because theoretically it's closer to the original and you have a, and you have a, a manuscript that is supposed to be closer to the original but isn't, that would in some way invalidate that manuscript as, 
as being more significant than another because of its date. So it, it kind of plays plays against what Tischendorf is wanting being textually critically minded. It's also important to note that these two codices contain lots of variations between themselves. John William Bergen, a strong proponent of the Textus Receptus, writes this in his book, Revision Revised, quote, It is in fact easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ the one from the other than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. British textual critic Herman Hossier, in his book, Codex B and its Allies, compared Sinaiticus with Vaticanus, finding 3,036 variations in the Gospels alone. Not the whole Bible, just the Gospels. Okay, let's pause for a second here. You may be asking yourself, all right, Van, that's great. So again, why why are you giving us a, a weird disjointed history lesson on uh, ancient books from maybe the 4th century, but maybe the 12th century? What we want to remember is that these are the ancient books that were very formative in the development of the 1881 Greek New Testament, which is very formative in the development of all of the versions, the modern versions that we see. And so knowing a little bit about these, and particularly where some of the problems with these exist, is going to be helpful as we continue looking at the work of Westcott and Hort. And that we will do next time. As always, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the PS Plus. If you have any questions about the Living Faith Bible Institute, I'd encourage you to go to lfbi.org. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I hope that you join us next time. Take care.